Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. We're in number 12 tonight, and I'm going to start and just read the first few verses, and we'll get right into it. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman who he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more humble than all the men on the face of the earth. <laughs> right? You read the first four verses of this chapter and you go, oh my goodness, there's like 20 issues in this. This is so packed, every single word of it. I'm going to start with the first word, which in my translation is the word then. In your translation, it might be the word and. Um, and, and really, it's not necessarily in the Hebrew. It's just and she spoke. It's an imperative of the word Miriam. Miriam spoke is what it is. But it, 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 it has to do with a continuation from what came before it. It's really important we remind ourselves of the context to know this situation with Miriam, right? And I like to do the reverse review so we know where we're at in the book anyways. But I'm going to summarize chapters 1 through 10 as they got prepared to move for God and with God. Chapter 11, we saw murmuring uh, that started to happen and there was complaining in general. We're going to call that griping, just general griping about things. And none of us in here ever do that, I know, <laughs> right? But, but the Bible says they, that people are grapers. It's our nature. Then in the next part of chapter 11, they had specific murmuring, which uh, you could call gossip because they were talking about Moses behind his back. And they had this kind of specific murmuring, murmuring, particularly about cucumbers and leeks not being provided in their diet, which we could complain about tonight. There were no leeks for us to eat tonight. Um, so you can always find things to, to gossip and, and gripe about if you want to. You can. Um, this was hurtful to Moses. It got back to him. And those two things alone made Moses wish that he was dead. You remember that? That I don't have to look at how wretched I am as a leader which shows his humility, which in verse 4 we get a hint of here, right? He would rather die than see what a bad leader he was. But the bad leader was not what God saw. God saw something quite different. Um, the way God initially deals with the gripers and the gossips is he burns them. Moses intervenes and says, please don't do that. So God says, okay, I won't. And it gets worse. And the complaining continues to happen until God says, all right, I'll give them what they want. And they leave camp, they go out of camp about a day's walk, and they eat the quail that God sends their way, and the quail um, infects them, and they start dying outside the camp. So you've got these situations that are um, really as interesting as the plagues of Egypt, right? These are really strong interventions by God to guide and create a nation that he wants to have. And one of the things he does as they start moving, they've picked up camp and they've started to move to lo locations, is he's getting rid of the complainers out of the group, right? Because they're an infection in the group. And that complaining just continues to grow and get worse, um, which got me thinking this week about the church. So here's one of the things where I was telling Steph, I got to go write this down. The Barna study came out on churches during the COVID stuff. Do you know that 50% of millennials across the country, according to the Barna poll, have stopped going to church altogether during the last three months, just stopped going. You get to other generations, the numbers are a little better, but roughly a third of all Christians in America have just stopped going to church. Wow. So if, if, if you go to a church where you're hearing the word of God and it's feeding your soul, the, they're either starving to death at this point or the word was never being taught and it was never feeding their soul in the first place. And it didn't make them better people. So you had a lot of people going to church out of habits. Essentially, you've got a lot of people in America right now that are leaving the church 
going away from the camp to chase after birds, right? And it's this, this kind of image of, oh, God could be just cleaning out the church, right? And you find some churches that only have two families left, but those two families want to sit in fellowship and hang out with each other and have lunch together. And there's something about going to church that's beautiful to them and wonderful. And you think, oh, sometimes God just kind of cleans things out. So the people that are left are people that honestly want to follow God. That's a really powerful image. And it's an interesting thing. The complaints against God keep going. Uh, with Moses, he brings those complaints to God. Remember this from last week? I won't do too much review, but just a couple minutes. And he kind of goes to God and he does what I'm going to call groaning. So we've got griping, gossiping, and groaning in the last chapter. The difference with groaning is that it's a good thing. We're supposed to groan to God about the things we need. We're supposed to say, God, give me this day my daily bread. And we're supposed to go to God with those things that we want and we need. It's how we get prepared for living in the kingdom and how we're supposed to live when kingdom comes, right? May your kingdom come as earth as, on the earth as it is in heaven. You don't say that unless you're groaning to God about the state of the earth. And that's how Jesus taught us to pray, right? Groaning for God is good. 2 Corinthians 5, 2, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. We groan that we want to be more like God. So what Moses does is reflected elsewhere in the Bible too. And you just think of that idea of living life in such a way where when we have that human nature to complain, it gets a new spirit where we complain about the things of God, the thing God wants us to complain about. I want to be more like Jesus. Look at my sin. I complain about my own sin. Look at my problems that I have. And you start taking that nature of complaining and turning it into groaning. It becomes a very different kind of thing, right? So there's kind of this idea here that, 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 that you get going there and you take everything to the Lord in prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. All my sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Every time your heart gets upset about something, you give it to the Lord in prayer. And that's exactly what we saw Moses do last chapter. Good leader when Moses does this, yes? Bible lifted him up. But that leader's having problems this week. And then in the and then, Miriam, right? This is connected to what happened in the last chapter. The other little thing that happened in the last chapter that this is connected to, and we have to keep this context, Moses picked 70 leaders from amongst the nation of Israel. Miriam was not one of them. Right? So that's part of the context here. So he picks 70 leaders and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's not an issue of Moses being a tyrant leader. And I've heard that critique about Moses because of this chapter. But we know already about Moses that he takes advice from Jethro. We know that he's listening to the complaints because it's breaking his heart. We know that he's humble because he goes to God and says, I don't want to lead these people. Please let somebody else do it. We know the character of Moses is not that guy. But then we look at these first few verses. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. I've said Miriam so far because in, in Jewish uh, uh, prose, the first name is the one that's in authority. So when it lists Miriam and Aaron, it means Miriam's kind of the leader of this complaint. She's the one that's kind of in charge in this situation. Um, so Miriam brings this issue. She has Aaron along for support. She does the speaking. Apparently they weren't part of the people chasing after quail. So these are Moses's closest like compatriots, right? His sister and his brother. Miriam, uh, you should know this too. If you were a Hebrew reader and you're reading the word Miriam, in the Hebrew, the word Mi Miriam means rebellion. That's an odd thing to be named when you're a kid. Largely the word means rebellion because of this chapter. And that's just what the Hebrew word comes to mean. So it's not necessarily that Miriam's parents were horrible parents and named her this horrible name. Uh, in the Greek, of course, Miriam means sister of Moses. So you look that up in the Greek and it you know, has more of that intent. But she becomes the one that rebelled. And henceforth, every time the word Miriam is used in the Bible after this chapter, there's only one other occasion where it refers to her dying. And that's there, but in Numbers 17:10, Deuteronomy 31:27, 1 Samuel 15:23, Nehemiah 9:17, all through the rest of the Old Testament, when you see the word Miriam, it means rebellion. It's not a pronoun, it's not a proper noun, it's a noun that means rebellion, or a verb that means rebellion. In Job 23:2, it means bitter complaint. The word Miriam. 
which is our current topic tonight. That's where this word gets that meaning from is what's going to happen here. So in, we know there's been complainers in the camp because we saw that last week. We even saw that way back in Exodus 15, just to bring your memory up. Remember they complained way back in Exodus 15? They've been complaining for a year. This is the defining nature of people that are outside of God's will. And it's been happening a long time. But a lot of them now have been taken care of. But we know that three days in, they were already complaining. So then they spoke against Moses. And with that context, you're thinking, well, what exactly did they have an issue with with Moses? He's freed them from slavery. He's given them law and order. He's given them a camp with arrangements to live in. He has created an environment and a new nation that serves and honors God. And the God of the universe has shown up in the middle of the camp in the form of a Shekinah glory cloud and is hanging out with the, with the nation of Israel. You've got to at some level think Moses is doing okay. Yet still, there's people that have an issue with it, right? So you've got griping, gossiping, groaning, and now this new challenge. There's this progression to this story where God's writing this narrative to help us see what had to happen in the nation Israel amongst the people of God. So they go directly to Moses. That's good. They have a false pretense. That's going to be bad. <laughs> um, and the pretense is Moses' wife, this Ethiopian woman. Um, and they essentially, within a sentence, move on to this other topic of, well, doesn't God talk to us too? Essentially saying to Moses, like, what makes you the boss? Right? So this horrible situation is coming under false pretenses. Um, we know that Moses doesn't have an issue with other people being leaders because he just made 70 elders, right? Joshua came to complain to him last week and say, Moses, there's other people out gifted with the Holy Spirit. And Moses is like, okay, great. Because he's already asked God to alleviate the load. So it could be that these people are ready to step up and take that role. And Moses is happy letting, he's 80 some years old. He's tired. He's okay with other people stepping up and taking on leadership. Good for them. So we, when we have this accusation from Miriam and Aaron, that's saying we're gifted too. Why don't we have some more say-so in what we're doing? That's a really tough situation for Moses. And it points out in verse 4 that they're there. The pretense of the Ethiopian woman is a really interesting thing. Their complaint is that he's married to a foreigner, but he was married to a foreigner before they were taken out of Egypt. There's no indication here that we're talking about a second wife or anything like that. We're talking about Zipporah, who had an issue with circumcision because that wasn't her upbringing. So she's probably from the nation of Cush or that region of Cush, which is what the word Ethiopian means here. She's a Cushite uh, is the actual Hebrew word. So it's a, in, in a region where there's a kingdom. There's a kingdom of Cush that's down in this area at this point in the world. And she's married to him uh, where modern day Somalia is. So either Jethro was from there or he married a wife from there or something to that point. It's not the point that Miriam has because you can see within a sentence, so they said, because this doesn't follow at all. It, let me just put it this way. What's Moses supposed to do about that complaint? Is he supposed to divorce her? Like what's the solution to that situation? And this is often the problem when people come with a pretense with a complaint. They really want to be in charge, so they find a complaint about something really tiny to come and knock on the door about. We have this issue here, here, and here. But there's no real solution to that issue. There's nothing Moses can do. They're critiquing Moses' character in who he's married to. And then maybe the solution is to have a worse character by divorcing someone without cause. Right? None of this makes sense. Okay? So Moses just doesn't say anything. And they keep going. Right? But there's a pattern here that there's a lack of rational thinking and reason behind this critique. We have a lot of that right now in our country, right? The, having our emotions be something that we should expect other people to respond to. So everyone justifies that their complaint is good and, and important. Nobody complains because they think it's something not worthy of complaining about. Nobody does. We all think that when we have a complaint, it's a big deal. So we bring it to people saying it's a big deal with the expectation that then they think it's a big deal too. And that's a pretty big leap. But that's kind of what Miriam's doing. So she's got in verse 1 this confused thinking pretense. We know from verse 2 that's not the real issue. The real issue is about power and control and who's going to be the boss. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us too? Putting them on equal level with Moses. And we've been reading the Bible word for word all the way through. Are they on equal level with Moses? So 
basically, you know, she's asking this question and she's not really there to learn from Moses because he's hearing directly from God. She's here to tell Moses what to do and how to do it. So what does it say? Verse two, us also. Well, yeah, kind of. Has God spoken to Miriam and Aaron? And so that you don't have to do the same research I did, I'll just give you some verses. If you want to go back later, you can. Um, in Exodus 4.30, way back in Exodus, Mo, Aaron, Moses hears from God and tells Aaron to do things, and Aaron does what he's told. So, so far, that's what we know about Aaron. We know that in Exodus 12.1, God spoke to both Moses and Aaron at the same time. But the only reason Aaron was even in the room is because Moses said he didn't want to do it alone. Remember that? So, yes, God has spoken to Aaron, but it's, all, it's only really because Aaron was Moses' brother and, and Moses wanted somebody else there. So, yes, he's spoken to Moses. There's some truth there. What about Miriam? Got to go back to Exodus 15.21. She seemed to have the title of prophetess. And I think last week we even talked about prophecy as singing. This part of where we get it is Exodus 15. She appears to be a worship leader leading the people of Israel in song as they're walking and, and traveling together. And maybe Miriam was one of the women that were prayer warriors outside the tabernacle. It could be she was organizing that prayer group. So she's in leadership in two different regards, maybe as a prayer leader and definitely as a song leader. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to get other people to sing along to a song, that takes charisma, leadership, and talent. Miriam had those things. It is not easy to teach people a brand new song and have them singing along with you. So we know that about Miriam from Exodus um, uh, 15 is that she, she has this charismatic gift and joyfulness is part of what she brings to the nation of Israel. Exuberant joy in the form of song. That's awesome. And it's a kind of prophecy. So that's what she's known for at this point in history. But that's not how she'll be remembered throughout history. What a tragic thing that she could have been remembered for her joy and her song. And what she's remembered for is her complaining. Us also, God's clearly established Moses as the leader so far. Moses didn't want it in the first place because it comes with accountability and responsibility. And Moses doesn't want those things, right? He's spoken through us also. Yes, Miriam and Aaron, but he didn't give you the responsibility he's given Moses. Does God ever pick leaders in the Bible? And the answer to that is clearly yes. Not just Moses, but Joshua. He picks the judges. He picks David. He picks Solomon. He picks Esther. He picks Daniel. He picked all the prophets he chose to talk to. He picked Mary out of all the women on the planet. He picks Jesus to be his only begotten son. He picks all the disciples. He picks Paul on the road to, Bar on the road to um, Emmaus. No, Damascus. He picks Timothy. He picks Titus. He picks Saul, the king that screwed up. Throughout the Bible, God picks his people. Has he picked Miriam and Aaron or has he picked Moses based on what we've read so far? And the answer is really clear. That's what makes it difficult when we read a confused thinker, even in this context, to like see through that and see with clarity that there's half-truths mixed into each of these things they're saying. And then you get this thing in verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more humble than all the men who are on the face of the earth. Knowing the author of this book is Moses, when someone brags about their humility, you must question their humility, right? Because that doesn't seem like a humble thing to do. But Moses is also a person of truth. And what he's trying to do, in, I think in verse 3, is what I've just spent the last 10 minutes talking about. He's trying to show like, like the truth of this matter is not that he's arrogant and trying to push his way into leadership. That's never been the case with Moses. But that's how he's being perceived right now. So he's trying to show that this is false with verse 3. This accusation was false. Not only is Moses humble, but he would be more than anyone on the earth not wanting to be in this position. So the enemy attacks exactly what God has gifted Moses with and goes right after his integrity, goes right after his purity, his peacefulness, his gentleness, his intercessory prayer that we've already seen. This is a good man doing a good work getting millions of people out of slavery. And here he's got to deal with this Miriam and Aaron rebellion right in his own household. What a tragedy. That list of things I said, by the way, comes right out of James 3.17. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. Moses has got them in spades. This is a good man. So he's leading for God's glory, not his own. 
at Moses, I want to just go back. Moses' resistance to leadership, Exodus 3.11, he returns God's calling with, who am I to do all this stuff for you? Remember that? Moses says, who am I? And Need to Breathe just put a new song where it's all, who am I, who am I? I love it. Anyways, listen to the song. It's a good song. In Exodus 4.10, Moses says, I'm not eloquent. I'm not the guy who can speak for you, Moses. I don't even have the ability. Nobody wants to listen to me. And Moses is being used by the things God has given him and get put in him. And now he's being accused of being a dictator-style leader. It's just not who he is. Anyways, so he's had 40 years to get humble because as a young man, his pride got him into a lot of trouble. His dominance got him into trouble, but now he's not that guy anymore. This is what Moses was afraid of happening at the very beginning, Exodus 4.1. But suppose they won't believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose that they suppose that they say the Lord has not appeared to you. What if they come up to me and say, doesn't the Lord talk to us just as much as you? Think of that situation for Moses. His own sister and brother do exactly what he was scared of when he started in the ministry. He's got to be brokenhearted. He says nothing. All Moses really knows at this point is that they were slaves and now they're free. At the end of the day, the, the fruit's there. All God really does is picks an unlikely guy to do his work. Now, in this case, God's going to stick with him. Um, if Moses doesn't speak up at this, or if, I'm sorry, if the Lord doesn't speak up in verse 4, at this point, I think Moses would have given up leadership. I think he would have just said, fine, you can have it. I don't, I don't want to fight for it that bad. I'm not interested in battling you on these things, right? Knowing what we know about Moses, and just last chapter he prayed to die so he didn't have to watch his, self, his wretchedness, I think at this point he'd just say, yeah, you can do it if God doesn't intervene. But at this point, God's picked Moses. He's picked him for a reason, and he's not going to let that happen. Um, because right now we're dealing with Miriam and Aaron who are claiming the same level of hearing from God as Moses, which with that quick historical review, we know is not the case. They're not, they have been talked to by God, but not at this, in the same way that God's been talking to Moses, not even close. So you got to beware of false prophets. They come in among you in sheep's clothing. They're really nice people. They're really good. They know all the right folks and all the right things, but inwardly they're just wolves. They just want to eat and consume things. you got to be wary of these people. So Moses, here's Moses. Joshua's not in the room. Joshua's the guy that's ready to defend Moses and protect him. But here's two people, even closer relations than Joshua, that are not only are they not defending Moses, they're trying to take him down a notch. This is a terrible situation. How do you cover this in only an hour? Verse 4, suddenly the Lord said to Moses, the word suddenly, like God steps in. That situation's not going to go the way that humans are going to carry it out. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, notice the change in order. Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. And then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. Again, notice the change in order. They both went forward. Suddenly is the word pithom. Again, it means surprisingly, stepping in, urgency, right in the moment, like if this didn't happen, something really bad would have happened. Come out, you three. Apparently God speaks in an audible voice to come out, which answers the question that Miriam and Aaron had, which is, doesn't the Lord talk to us just like to you? And when the Lord starts answering your questions like that, again, like, you wonder to what degree the other shoe is going to drop or the other, however that phrase goes. So what were they thinking? I think Moses was thinking, oh no, this isn't good for my sister or my brother because Moses has been talking to God. I think Aaron is thinking, wait, I thought we were here to talk about the Ethiopian woman, <laughs> right? I Honestly, why is Aaron even here, right? And then I think Miriam, because as we go through the chapter, I think she's thinking, good. Moses is going to get it. See, God's talking to me just like Moses. We're all getting talked to at the same time. But just like Jesus brought people in a little closer just to show them their own hypocrisy, right? Watch out. Watch out, Miriam. Here it comes. And I kind of think that might be, again, what Aaron is thinking. Um, so the Lord comes down. There's a visual presence and an audio presence. God is making it very clear who's going to talk. When he sits in the gate throughout the Old Testament, when people sit in the gate or the doorway, it means they're a judge. So when David's son rebelled and he sat at the gate, 
He was acting like he was the king and judging people's situations. So God takes that seat and, and he takes the seat where a judge would sit and essentially God shifts the whole conversation from who's in charge to a courtroom. Because when he takes that position and has them move, that's exactly what's happening. Now they're being judged. So there's this idea of assertiveness and self-confidence and self-assuredness that they, they're so sure of their situation that in the world, everything tells us those are positive attributes. In the Bible, it says the exact opposite. Those things can really be liabilities in the kingdom. That if you think you're all that great and you've puffed yourself up so big, that actually can hurt your witness in your ministry where humility can be so much more effective. So leadership in this world is taken by people like Miriam and Aaron. Leadership in the kingdom is given by people like God to Moses, right? And a lot of times leaders, and I, you've probably seen this too, real leaders in the kingdom wonder how they got there. Like, I don't even know how this happened. 30 years ago, I was a farmer and now I'm preaching in a church. I don't even know how I got here because they're just following the Lord day by day, faithfully, being content with what God's given them and God keeps giving them more opportunities in the kingdom. So then he said, verse six, hear my words. <laughs> Again, when God says stuff like this, that's an imperative verb. It means listen up right now. I'm in charge of this situation. It's an imperative. If there's a prophet among you, he says, if, so God's not even granting that any of those three are prophets. I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. In other words, God says, I'm the one who picks who the prophets are, not the humans, right? Just because you wrote a song, Grant, doesn't make you a prophet because God picks prophets, um, even though that was a blessing to the kingdom. So it sets a precedence for all future prophets. Either God talks directly to him or he doesn't. In Jewish tradition, if you say you know what's going to happen in the future and it doesn't come true, you are killed as a prophet. There was no place for that in Jewish tradition. So God's in control. He decides who it is. Be very careful about calling yourself a prophet. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Verse 7. What a compliment to Moses. So we're in the courtroom. God starts with Moses and says, he's my faithful servant. Don't you hope when you see Jesus someday, when it's your turn to sit in the judgment, that God looks at you and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And you're like, thanks for forgetting all the bad stuff. <laughs> like, I really appreciate that, God. Thank you. That's a wonderful day in court for you because you have been forgiven. Moses has screwed up a lot, and we've gotten to see that together as a group as we've walked through Moses' life. What an awesome confirmation for Moses right now. And he has more screwing up to do in the future, and he's done lots in the past, but here he is getting this wonderful confirmation right from the mouth of God. How amazing. He is faithful in all my house. That idea that he's a servant here is in use like a steward or a butler, along with the phrasing of faithful in my house. God's referring to Moses as the butler that takes care of his house while he's away. He's the steward of the property is kind of the word in the Hebrew. Um, Ephesians 2.19 says we're all members of the household of God. So God has framed it for us that he has a household and we're part of it. And Moses is in charge of that household while he's away. When does God come to replace the, the butler of the household? When Jesus shows up. He comes to claim his house himself. And those that were in the law of Moses should have given that over to God. Just like a good butler says, welcome home, master. Your house is as you left it and even better. I've shined the silverware. And that's what a good butler will do. A good steward of the home. A bad steward won't do that. And I have to make my Lord of the Rings reference. The steward of Gondor was supposed to relent his ownership of Gondor to Aragon when he comes back from the grave and is ready to redeem his kingdom. But instead of relenting, he throws a temper tantrum and he won't relent his kingdom. And it was wrong for him to do that. He's a bad guy character in the book for those of you that haven't read it or haven't seen the movie yet. Yeah. Hebrews 3, Moses was indeed faithful in his house, even our, our the the early uh, disciples would quote Moses and say he was faithful in his house, but Christ owns the house, right? So Moses' writings are going to serve as God's word for God's people all the way up until Christ. All the prophets are judged according to Moses' law. 
and all the kings, when they first become a king of Israel, have to handwrite all the law of Moses as they enter into their kingship. All the kings of Israel are under the law of Moses. He gets to be the steward, and his writings are the stewardship of Israel for thousands of years. This is amazing. Um, so we have that situation. Verse 8. I speak with him, God's still talking about Moses, face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of the Lord. So when Miriam and Aaron are asking what's so special about you, God answers their question. I speak to him face to face, no fancy prophecies or weird sayings, and he sees the form of the Lord. Moses is special because he's faithful. Amon is the word. We've seen that already. He sustains that support. There's only a couple other people in the Bible that were called faithful. Noah in Genesis 7, Abraham in Genesis 15. Now Moses is faithful in all his house. And he believed the Lord and it accounted to him as righteousness. To support God and be on God's side is faithfulness. We are going to be asked very soon, if you haven't already many times in your life, whose side are you on? And Moses continues to say, despite how popular it is, I'm on God's side. He's going to just be faithful to God. Two, he talks to God face to face. In the Hebrew, that's peh, peh. So they're repeating a word there, mouth, mouth. Um, adds emphasis. Um, you have to ask, is God talking face to face like he's actually talking to a, a, a God takes on the form of a person? And then they talk to a person. And if that's the case, then Moses maybe is talking to Jesus. And that's what's going on there. It depends on how you read it, how you want to interpret it. Either way, the point is simple, right? I talk to him directly. Plainly, in the second prepositional phrase, is mara, the sight, appearance, or the vision of seeing something. Another idea that he's talking to him plainly, like we talk to each other in a plain way, right? Very direct and the appearance of something. The dark sayings is an odd translation. In the Hebrew, it means riddles or questions, um, which is a lot of times when we see, when we get to the prophets, they speak in riddles and questions. Jesus spoke in parables that people didn't understand when they heard them, riddles and questions, right? Jesus would often ask a question. He, there are perplexing Proverbs when we get to the book of Proverbs. When God speaks to humanity, often speaks to them in a way that serves what they need now, but is prophetic for the future too. And when we look back in ret retrospect, especially the book of Isaiah, we go, oh my goodness, he was talking about Jesus there. Yet it was in answer to a question that the human had about Israel at that time. And you see a lot of that in the prophecies, but he's not doing that with Moses. So we won't get into that tonight too much. He sees the form, the appearance or likeness, the embodiment of God, or the likeness of a person is what that means in the Hebrew. Again, is Jesus coming in and talking with Moses? And again, it doesn't say directly. But we do talk directly to God through prayer, and we can see the form of God through the Gospels in Jesus Christ. So a lot of what he's describing about Moses is true of the church era. Like we have these opportunities to talk plainly to God too. So 40 years of simple life for Moses did some good. That's his judgment of Moses in the situation. Answers Miriam and Aaron's question. God does steps in and does it directly. Now we get to Miriam and Aaron, and he turns to them. Verse 8, why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Ouch. So Moses, God speaks truth. There's no pretense. There's no. He doesn't even address the Ethiopian wife question because God knows the heart of Miriam and Aaron. He knows exactly what this is all about. You're speaking against my servant. Why? Aren't you scared of doing that? So when God blesses a person, he backs them up. And the fear of God's power should always be in play when we challenge a person who's not in sin and doing what God has told them to do. And that's something that in the church is, is just one of those situations. We should always be thinking about that. Is this person in sin? Are we admonishing or rebuking them? Or if they're just doing something we don't like and they, we don't like the way they do it or how they do it. So that's a situation that can be pretty tricky. Do you challenge people that are living and doing what God's told them to do? And the answer is you should at least be really scared to do that because you're now coming up against what God has told them to do. And you don't know that conversation. This is why David doesn't touch Saul. This is exactly what David probably read when he was a kid. He respects the office of the position of the anointed one of God more than he respects anything else because David fears God. And if he messes with Saul, 
who God's given him life today. It's like God could take out any leader at any time by simply taking away their breath, right? God can snatch life from us as easily as he gave it to us in the womb, right? It does, it's something God could deal with right now. But God doesn't, which means Saul is there because God has left him there for a season. And David respects that and honors that. First Samuel 24, if you want to read that story. So Moses isn't above being challenged. Exodus 18, I talked about Jethro challenging him. And Jethro is blessed for challenging Moses because Jethro's heart was to help Moses. Joshua challenges Moses in the last chapter. And Joshua is blessed for doing it because in his heart, he's trying to help Moses. Like, here's an anointed person to God. How can I be of service? How can I help? But Miriam and Aaron aren't doing that at all. That's not what's in their heart. And that's something that is a, a, a terrifying situation. Notice that Miriam does not say a word here. She doesn't respond. In the face of God, that's probably the wisest thing she's done in this chapter. Her boldness has just melted. Her heart is either softening or it's hardening. Because that's what happens when God speaks to people. So either she's going to harden her heart or she's going to soften it. Luckily, in verse 9, as the anger of the Lord is aroused against them and he departs, I think we have some indication of what is going on in Miriam's heart. Luckily, God gave us two characters, Miriam and Aaron, and we get to see how they both react. So we get to see one person who probably hardens her heart and one person who softens his heart in the same situation. Right? So this is kind of great. So this idea that the Lord's anger has been aroused, it doesn't say how they knew that, other than that he departed, which would be an oh crap moment, right? They came with a concern and Moses, remember, told those two guys to stand outside the tent while he went and talked to God. Here you got Miriam and Aaron and God just leaves the, the conversation. You have to think what's going to happen next, right? So that cloud departs. Um, <laughs> The word departs at the end there in verse 9 is in, is would be the same way that a judge bangs a gavel and leaves after giving a judgment. So that idea of leaving the courtroom is kind of what happens in this situation. So he's been removed in verse 10. Um, when the cloud uh, departed is an, actually a different word. It's not a judge leaving the courtroom. It's just to leave like I left the room, right? So the different words get used there. Um, God doesn't inflict a plague right here. He just leaves. That's all it says. That's probably the most horrendous situation we could ever be in as a human, is that God has just left us. And, and sometimes we think that there's this battle between darkness and light. And, and, and I think theologians will often discuss the idea of darkness is simply the absence of light. When light shows up, darkness doesn't stand a chance. But when God removes his presence from our life, anything can happen, right? It's the darkness is just then the thing that fills the gap when the good is gone. So when the good people of the world are quiet, evil, evil will thrive. And evil then is just the absence of God. So when he departs, we should be looking for what's going to happen next. So when the cloud departed from the tabernacle, verse 10, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. She's now snow white. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. Second confirmation that the complaint was really from Miriam is that she gets stricken with leprosy. Aaron does not, right? God knows the hearts of each person. He's judged them and weighed them without a word, and he is left. So difficult concept here. Does God give disease? Well, in this case, as we're reading the chapter, yes. But is it that God left and that body can't renew itself like darkness is the absence of light or did God actually give her leprosy or does our body and our breath get sustained by God because every day we're on this earth we have a chance to serve him and as long as we're still alive that's our job and our responsibility how do we serve you today Lord so leprosy shows decay in the body it is the inability of living cells to renew themselves properly so you get growths and you get dead things that just fall off your body that's what leprosy is. And we've talked about leprosy before back in Leviticus. This idea of leprosy is an image of sin. This is what God does to Miriam because he's just going to leave and he's not going to be part of her life at this point. Automatically, this means Miriam's going to get sent out of the camp according to Levitical law. 
She'll get to live outside the camp, just like those people that ate the, the quail in the last chapter. So, <laughs> and I already made my reference to Snow White, who eats the candy apple, red apple of sin, and she falls asleep. And that's the, the premise of Snow White, and can she be redeemed? Can her Savior come and redeem her and bring life back into her? So we've got Miriam, who now has leprosy. That idea of Snow White, oh, I'll get to that in a sec. Um, yeah, okay. So in Daniel 7, 9, we have this reference to being as white as snow too. Um, everywhere in the Old Testament, white as snow is a reference to the grave or death and destruction. This is a cool word study. Whole Old Testament, white as snow means dead, leprous, bad. Then you get Daniel 7, 9, who says, this is a wonderful prophecy. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Your sins are white as snow, right? And it's prophetic of what's going to happen. And it's true in relation to leprosy, but it's also true in re relation to forgiveness. So white as snow could be Daniel referencing leprosy and just stating a fact. But again, the way it's worded, it could also mean that your sins are going to be converted to purity, being white as snow, because the linen robes were white too. So this idea that White as snow is true in leprosy, but it's also true in forgiveness. And then you have references to white as snow. And in the New Testament, it's always in reference to Jesus Christ. Old Testament, it's always sin and death. New Testament, it's always a reference to Christ. Matthew 28, 3, Revelations 1, 14. The New Testament, white as snow is a reference to your sins being washed away. What a beautiful image, right? So then Aaron turned. Apparently, Miriam's unaware of what's happened to her because the first reaction we get is Aaron. That's kind of an interesting twist. Um, there's this sickness of the soul sometimes where people are just blind to their own faults, right? And it's the first thing that happens when God is not in our life is we get really confused about ourselves and who we are and what our identity is, right? So Miriam is not even seeing this and Aaron is the one that notices what's going on which is a fascinating idea that you could get leprosy and not, not be the one that reacts first, right? And that's the case with Miriam. So she's blind to sin, and that often happens. Matthew 7, 3, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and you don't even consider the plank in your own? Why are you having issues with Moses when you don't even look at your own heart and what's going on there? So Miriam's accusing Moses of pride, but in reality, it's her pride that makes her make that challenge right? Jesus targets these kinds of people and he often calls them blind. It's almost, he almost gets killed by religious leaders. Um, and in the book of John, he walks out of nearly being killed by these Pharisees, right? And he's totally calm and in di total disregard of his attackers, he pulls aside and has a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a blind man and he heals him fascinating kind of image of what Jesus is doing there, right? He's got the whole world of, of religious leaders that hate his guts and he goes and he heals a blind person and gives him his sight back because that's what Jesus does. He loves people like us. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into the world that those who do not see can see and those that who see can be made blind. And then some of the Pharisees who were, who were with him or followed him from this last scene heard these words and said, so are we blind too? Are you calling us blind people? Are you judging us? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you'd have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. It's because you think you're all that, that you can't really enter into the kingdom of God. It has to be a humility there where you have something to learn from God. But if you think you know it all, it's really hard to enter into that kingdom. The arrogance is their sin, period. It's their pride that's the problem. All we see in this chapter that Miriam's done is challenged Moses and said, why am I not at the same level as you? It's all she's done. But God looks at the heart. He looks at the source of those things and how tragic it has to be to be in the inner circle of God's work and you're remembered as a rebellious person. Think of the historical status Miriam is in right now. She's in the middle of the coolest thing to happen in world history. She's right there. She's leading Israel in song. What an elevated position. How amazing that had to be. The glory of God is all around. She can see the power of God, but she doesn't have enough. She wants more. What a sick heart. 
What's wrong with that picture? Why can't you just enjoy being part of what God's doing? How tragic it is for the self-righteous to be in the same room with Jesus Christ and want to kill him. How does that happen? The only way that happens is when you think you know everything and there's nothing left to learn from some 30-year-old carpenter from Nazareth. Because God has nothing to say to you from that young man who knows nothing and dresses funny, right? How pharisaical, how horrible to be alive and in the same room with Jesus Christ and you pick the wrong side. And I don't think Pharisees thought they were bad people. They thought that's the whole problem is they thought they were good people, but they didn't have soft hearts towards what God wanted to do. And it's one of those convicting things for me. I never want to be in that boat. And I've been at university. I've walked with the scholars. I've talked with some of the top leaders in fields. And the one common sin they have is arrogance. And you think, I just can't be that guy. I know how to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. It's not, there's nothing waiting for you there but leprosy, right? That's the end result of this. Aaron has lost two sons to his pride, and now Aaron's watching his sister get leprosy. Where is Aaron's heart at right now? Oh my goodness, he's going to lose his sister too. Aaron sees what God is doing, and he's part of what God's doing. God's anointed him as a head priest, and there's his sister, a leper, Sarah, one word, Miriam, leper. Aaron saw Miriam leper. That becomes her last name in the Hebrew, right? It's horrible. Where does he have to see? What's going on here? So, verse 11, Aaron says to Moses, Oh, my Lord. Notice the change in tone as he calls Moses Lord. Not a capital L Lord, by the way. He's not saying you're Yahweh. He's just saying, my Lord, my captain, my leader. And he immediately puts himself under Moses, authority-wise. So Aaron says to Moses, Oh my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us, meaning him and Miriam, in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Second thing he does is he acknowledges his own sin. Now I'm starting to like Aaron. This guy gets it, right? Verse 12, Please don't let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. Okay, one reading of this is that Aaron is totally self-serving. Right, And you can see that reading, right? He sees what happens to Miriam and he knows that he's next in line and he's trying to, you know, repent out of like self-servingness. However, we know God reads hearts. And we know that God left the courtroom a long time ago. The judgment's already been made. He already knew Aaron's heart. So Aaron's doing this in a way that uh, could be self-serving. That's one way to read this. Another way to read this is way to go, brother. Like this is how you do it right? We have sinned. He acknowledges us that. He says, us, not her. He doesn't throw Miriam under the bus. He realizes he was there too. So he acknowledges his own sin. And in this sense, he is very different than what we saw Adam do to Eve, <laughs> right? Adam threw her under the bus. Didn't take any responsibility. Not that idea that, you know, men go down so women can go free. None of that. Adam's like, the woman can go down so I can go free. But not Aaron. Man, he's praying for her, he's interceding for her, he's taking responsibility for himself and for her at the same time. This is a good guy. Oh my Lord, Adon, again, it's not Adonai, it's Adon. Uh, he recognizes his authority. Aaron's name, I already told you Miriam's name means rebellion. You know what Aaron's name means? If you already looked it up. It means light bringer. In the same chapter that Miriam takes on the meaning of rebellion, Aaron brings on the meaning of light. Awesome. This is such a cool chapter. Honey, I got to go write that down, right? I got another thing I got to get in there, right? Aaron sees his only hope in this situation is to submit himself to God Stewart and be part of that thing. That's our predicament too. In the face of Jesus Christ, who's the owner of the house, who has come back and taken Moses' place, the only situation we have in that is to either submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior or not. Harden our heart and go on with our lives. That's our choice. So Aaron brings light in that he shows us one of the first people to repent from his sins and acknowledge the lordship of God Stuart. Oh, this is one of the first salvation moments in the Bible, and his name forevermore means light bringer. Way to go, Aaron. Awesome image of how to repent. 
state the truth, admit what's been done and what you're done, not only what's been done, but what you are. And Aaron does both, right? He admits his trespasses and his sins, what he is and what he's done, and then actually ask for salvation. And, and, and he does that. And what's Moses's response? Looks a lot like Jesus. So Moses cries out to the Lord saying, please hear, O God, I pray. Moses doesn't hold grudges. I want to point out here that this is a simple and direct prayer. There is no flashiness to this. There's no Egyptian pageantry. Well, let me do a ceremony. There's no cows getting killed, right? There's nothing going on at the tabernacle. It's just a, even though we saw all that stuff in the book of Leviticus, which was to help the nation worship the Lord, this is just a simple prayer and appeal to God. Very direct, very straightforward. It's intercessory prayer. Moses doesn't have to pray this, but he has a heart to do it. Notice here, and I think this is just one of the things that just broke me up. This is the first thing Moses says the whole chapter. His whole authority and role is being challenged, and he just sits there quietly. And the first thing he says is, please hear, O God, I pray. And it just made me think of Jesus on the cross saying, forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. Just forgive them. And that appeal, right? Be humble. Be honest. Be straightforward. This is significant stuff. Moses doesn't speak at all. A lot of times complainers can go on and on and on and on and on and on. Complainers like to hear themselves talk because that's the problem. They think they're the most important thing. That's the problem. It's the core. The response to that is to not be that. <laughs> Moses just sits and listens. Tell me all you got. And then he prays for him. A lot of times complainers don't ask what other people think because they don't care. Moses is listening this whole chapter. So it, it's, a, it's an image of how we work with people that maybe aren't close to God and how we can help them become closer to God, I think, is that we listen and we care for them and we pray for them and we intercede. Moses doesn't get into an argument with them because no one comes into the kingdom because they lost an argument, ever. It doesn't happen. Grant's smiling because he knows I like to say that all the time. And I love a good argument. I'm an arguer. But that isn't how you bring people into the kingdom. Notice how little love Aaron and, and Miriam have had for Moses. Even less love for his wife. Wouldn't you think his brother and sister would want to build a relationship with his awesome wife? I tell you, I meet people and they don't respect Stephanie. I got little or no time for them at all. These people are threatening, like suggesting that Moses should put off Zipporah. Man, I'm not, it would be hard for me to pray for those people like Moses. I'd be like, yeah, leprosy is about right, Lord. I'm with you. That's a good thing. You diss my wife? Screw you. Not Moses. He's not like that at all, right? He just intercedes. Please heal her, O oh God, I pray. Right now, he just jumps in. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Though I speak with tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, I can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, like Miriam and Aaron. Though I, have the, though I have all faith in God, so that I could move a mountain, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I give everything I have away. But though I give my body to be burned, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Why are we doing any of this if it doesn't change how we love other people? All there's this awesome YouTube video where somebody listens to a Christian song, the Reckless Love song, and it's a non-Christian listening to this song. And he gets done with it and he goes, these words are so beautiful. And the music matches the song. And I can just see what it feels like to have God love me this much and come after me and seek me. And he stops and he looks at the camera and he goes, why can't we be more like this? If this is what God is, why can't we do more of that? Right? Just go after people and pursue them and love them. Moses shows us that for, you know, just in such a powerful way in this chapter. There's no gain in the kingdom if it doesn't have to do with love. I tell people this a lot of times before they visit the Bible study, at least my friends. I'm like, look, we study the Bible. That's the foundation. But we also love one another a lot. And if you're not here to build relationships with other people in this Bible study, then don't come. Right? Because that's what we're here to do. Live life together. Love each other. Be a family of sorts in the spirit and in the kingdom. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And if that's not something you want, then, you know, find another fellowship and, and have fun. And no hard feelings. It's just what we do. Right? 
so you can have everything. You can understand all of the Bible up through Numbers chapter 12. But if it doesn't affect how you love one another, then it's pointless. It's worthless. It has no value. Matthew 26, 62, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer us nothing? What is it these men testify to you? And, and then Jesus keeps silent. Even in the face of abuse, Jesus is willing to wait on God and what he does, right? Moses, when he's accused and betrayed and questioned, God steps in. And you wonder if Jesus read these stories as a boy and was just trying to do what Moses did and keep his mouth shut. Right? This is the model for what Jesus did. Matthew 26, 67. And then they spat in his face and they beat him and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who's the one that struck you? Mockery, insults. Even when they brought Jesus to the court, he chose silence in the face of bald-faced lies. He doesn't argue. Matthew 27, 12. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And Pilate said to him, don't you hear how many things they're testifying against you? But he answered him not one word so that the governor marveled greatly. What kind of God is this that says nothing in the face of accusations from puny little humans? How much in our flesh would we have wished for an Avengers-like moment where God just went and squished all the accusers? But then that love would have never properly been shown how far God would demote himself to serve humanity as a sacrifice for our sins. Did Jesus know that when Moses stayed quiet, God stepped in? But did he know that as he stayed quiet in his humanity, did he really know what was going on? And that's a huge theological debate. We're just studying Numbers 12. We'll get to that when we get to Matthew. God departed in verse 9, and he doesn't come back. It's like God departed Jesus, and he, he didn't quite know what was coming. Matthew 27, 46, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud, loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you showing up? I'm being falsely accused. I'm, I'm, I've been nailed to a cross. Where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me? Sometimes when we pray, God comes to the rescue. Sometimes when God himself prays to himself, God doesn't come to the rescue. Because sometimes coming to the rescue advances God's kingdom. And sometimes not coming to our rescue, rescue advances God's kingdom. And in both cases, that's true. Either way, we just cry out for those that are the people that we love. Jesus cried out for those people. Moses cried out for those people. They do the same thing. Then the Lord said to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, just like the Roman guards spit in Jesus' face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterwards she can be received again. How merciful. She gets one week outside the camp, and then God's going to let her back in? Wow. So the spitting in the face, of course, is what would be a humiliating thing. It's not deadly to Miriam, but it would definitely be shameful. Her challenging of God's plan is shameful. Uh, it's likely that Miriam, in defying his word and his will and his steward, has spit in God's face, that that's essentially what she's been doing. And Moses is justly saying this is the bare minimum here is that she's going to spend seven days outside the camp. We're going to put her in the place that she deserves. So she's shut out of God's people and God's kingdom. Uh, that's a horrible consequence. Miriam is silent at this point, um, but she's going to fall. Before calling God cruel in this case with Miriam, notice that Aaron did the same thing that Miriam did, and in Aaron's case, there's no consequence whatsoever, right? And the difference between Miriam and Aaron is one repents and one does not. So he gives them both what they want. In the same way he did with the nation of Israel. Remember there were some complainers that they wanted more meat and he gave them more meat and it killed them. And there's other people that stayed in the camp and didn't go out and get the quail and he kept them close to him and, they, and he kept them close. Essentially when people go to hell, it's not because God sends them there. It's because God departs and they get to go where they want. They don't want to be with God for all of eternity. They get exactly what they want. They get eternity without God. And it's horrible and tragic. And it's one of those things where you have to show people the love of God so they know what they're missing if they're going to go to hell without that love. What a horrible thing. 
Then you get people that are scared to even talk about God with folks today, and I, for good reason in our culture. But you're basically loving that person and being nice to that person as you send them all the way to hell. And that's a horrible place to be. So this conversation has happened, and we have this situation, verse 15, so Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. So here's two million people that know exactly why they're sitting there and not moving. <laughs> so this is two million people that maybe sang along with Miriam a year ago, and now they're just complaining about Miriam. She's getting exactly what she did to Moses. Instead of elevating herself, the logical conclusion is she's demoted. It gets worse than just the camp knowing about it. Stunningly, we hear no repentance from Miriam. Aaron and Moses will continue on side by side as we go through numbers. Miriam, uh, well, and you can even, as we get to the next chapter, Numbers 13, 26, if you want to flip a page, notice Aaron's right there with Moses like nothing happened. They just keep on keeping on together. Aaron might have been offensive to, to Moses, but Moses just forgives and moves on. Let's keep cruising together. We're brothers in Christ. Well, he didn't want to have said that. We're brothers in Yahweh. Let's keep moving forward together. Let's help do what God's called us here to do. But this is the last we hear Miriam's name until Numbers 20, verse 1, where it says they buried Miriam in the grave. So here's a songwriter, exuberant, joyful, charismatic, a leader in the nation, probably number three in the country, that is demoted and never heard from again for the rest of her life because she had pride and it goes before the fall. It's a cautionary tale. Deuteronomy 24.9, remember what the Lord God did to Miriam in the way? Yeah, he took her out of leadership. So she's done. She's out of the story. She's gone. She's removed from office. What a terrifying thought. Do you want that to be your story and your narrative? God gave you all these gifts and opportunities and talents, but you didn't take them, so there's no story for you. That would be the most horrible thing that would happen when you go to heaven. You could have good and faithful servant, or you could say, who are you? I did not know you. What a horrible difference between those two things. Be many that will come and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I did not know you. I didn't know you. We didn't hang out. So she's brought into the camp. Aaron's going to carry on his role. I feel like this is the rest of the story. Aaron will carry on his role. People will complain, and it'll now be Moses and Aaron that they complain about. Moses got what he prayed for. Lord, I can't do this alone. Not only does he get 70 elders, but in this chapter, he gets a brother where they're going to complain against Moses and Aaron from here on out. So Moses knows his allegiance, knows his place, and he's elevated to be the equal with Moses as we go through a large part of the rest of this story. Amazing. That's what repentance does. God can take people in repentance and move up. God's going to continue to elevate another character from here forward, um, which is Joshua. He was introduced in the last chapter, but Miriam's fall elevates another charismatic, courageous leader that's going to rise in the ranks. And in Numbers 13 alone, uh, Moses is going to change Joshua's name, and that's always a big deal in the Bible. He's going to change Joshua's name from salvation to Jehovah is salvation. Yeah, that's kind of cool. By Numbers 27, 18, God is telling Moses to take Joshua with him as his number two. So we're going to start to see more of Joseph, him. And then we'll read the last verse. Um, verse 16, And afterwards the people moved from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. You know I have to look these up. Uh, Hazaroth means settlement. It's where they settled while they waited for Miriam. And the wilderness of Paran means the place of caverns. Likely because there were caverns there. right? So it's not always rocket science on these things. And afterward, in, in, in verse chapter and 12, seem to have gone together like a big giant run-on sentence. In fact, in some versions of the Bible, like half the chapter starts with the word and. It's kind of interesting to look at it. But we have chapters 11 and 12, this idea of complaining goes together, and it's all one kind of big concept. And as with Gideon, God thins the people out until he gets the faithful because he wants to move forward with the faithful and clean the chaff out from the wheat. So at this point, most of the complainers are either burnt dead from plague, or one of them got called out and silenced and had to sit on the side of the road while everybody waited for her, right? So that's been the three treatments of these various kinds of complainers. And then I think it's great, and afterward, the people moved. Once you deal with this stuff, cool things happen. 
and the people can move. However, we're not done with complaining. They'll keep complaining and there'll be more forms of complaining and different ways to complain till at some point you're like, I feel like I'm complaining about the fact that Numbers has a lot of chapters on complaining. Um, I just want to read in closing uh, Philippians 2.14, which is, I think, one of the ways in which we're blessed being able to look at this stuff in retrospect with other believers that saw Christ and knew Christ. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you can become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights to the world, holding fast to the word of life so that I can rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain or labored in vain. Isn't that cool in light of Numbers 12? And there's a cool song for the kids. If there's like kids music thing, do everything without complaining. Every. Miriam was much better at it than I was. <laughs> Nobody comes to Christianity because they've pushed their way in. It doesn't work that way. Jesus taught it again and again and again and again. They come in because they see the love of God in their life and because the Holy Spirit's working on them. And we just get to watch that happen and see it happen. It's such a blessing when that happens, right? So we hold fast to the Word of God. We get the privilege of studying it, and we try to do it in our lives as much as we can. Don't do what Miriam did. Do what Aaron did. And say, and your reaction to those situations should be, Oh, Lord, I just want to serve you. And that's what we want to do. So let's pray. Dear Lord and King, just thank you so much. Lord, thank you that as believers we can do things without complaining and without arguing. Lord, that we lift you up and we elevate you above all things. Um, Lord, we want to get closer to you and, and we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that we know how to do that better than you do. We accept what you've given us to do today and tomorrow and this week and this month. Lord, thank you for the opportunities with every person we talk to, every interaction we have, the opportunity, Lord, to just be a person of grace and truth and love. Lord, help us to have no fear when we talk about the Lord God that we know that you are more powerful than anything. And when we uh, talk evilly of someone else that you've anointed, Lord, help us to have a deep fear that you are watching and you are paying attention to what we do and how we act. Bless us in that. Lord, help us to be humble like Moses, that in the face of accusations and complaining and arguing, we're silent because we trust you, Lord. We know that you will judge all people in all days and help our hearts to be honestly broken. Lord, I just, I don't get that sometimes but help my heart break for those people who hate you and help me to love those people in a way that, that only you can change my heart to make that happen. But Lord, help me to elevate those people to you in prayer, to lift them up and pray for them because it's your job to judge, not mine. So Lord, help me to just serve you as Moses served you. Help me to learn from these passages and these chapters and to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.